Hello, and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, it feels like an eon ago that we were last on the Powerhouse Politics podcast. Did I say podcast? Um, I, I didn't suddenly develop an accent, but I am a little tired, I think. Um, but but it, but, <laughs> it happens. but it seems uh, like like an eon ago, and I think it was I think it was like almost exactly 24 hours ago. Um, that we uh, that we could... it was before any president in the history of the country had been impeached twice. Yes. I know that, and it occurred to me that I have now personally witnessed and reported on seventy five percent of the impeachments of U.S. presidents in all of American history. I mean, going back to Washington, I have reported on seventy five percent of the impeachments. You, that makes you very old. Yeah. Or <laughs> politics very crazy for the, for the last 25 years or so. Uh, Donald Trump loves, gets, gets half of the impeachments by himself. That's, yes. that's an issue. So, um, you know, the, 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 the vote, uh, I, I think that if we go back to our uh, text chains back and forth and our emails, I, I think I essentially called almost exactly the number of Republicans that were going to vote, and I think you were off by a factor of two um you you were i think you you were predicting over 20 is that right yes but and i'll give you yes you get credit for that but i will say if you if you add in those who said he definitely he probably committed an impeachable offense you get closer to my number than than your number i can't decide john if 10 is a lot or a little i honestly can't i mean 10 is twice as many as as supported bill clinton's impeachment uh, democrats supporting bill clinton's impeachment um but it's also only 10 it's only ten, and it's one who we know. Um, well, I guess watchers of cable television and listeners to this podcast know Adam Kinzinger too. Uh, but there's you know one that's a high profile uh, defection, and that was Liz Cheney. Um, right. I, I think that notable in what you just said is that uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, was the one that went um, you know furthest in saying the president. Uh, had responsibility for what happened on Wednesday, that he needs to acknowledge that responsibility. Uh, And when McCarthy said that he was uh, against impeachment, he didn't say it was because the president didn't do anything that was impeachable. He didn't say it was because the president didn't commit high crimes and misdemeanors. He said because there is so little time left. Um, and that uh, he would be, you know, the vote on removal would be after he's already removed by the natural... By the calendar, because uh, uh, you know, a Senate trial would, would, would be happening after Trump is gone. And he also said it would further divide the country. But none of what McCarthy said uh, was in any way a defense of Donald Trump against the charges. Yeah, look, I, I, you didn't hear defenses of President Trump's conduct because it was indefensible. Uh, you know, I thought th- that, to me, was, was striking. You, you did have a couple of Republicans – I'm thinking about Jim Jordan, Matt Gates, Ken Buck – who were recycling old conspiracy theories to try to justify any anger that might be out there uh, and also continuing just to suggest that there was something that was unconstitutional about the conduct of the election. Uh, all of that fueled the president's complaints, obviously. But no one's going to say what the president did was okay or that it, it was it, it was good. Uh, that may you, – whether that includes the Trump – you know the Trump voters writ large is another is another question. Um, we've we've spoken often and covered extensively the uh, stranglehold that, that President Trump has had on his party for years now. Surprising to a lot of observers because of how he came in uh, from the outside and crashed that Republican Party. Uh, but that's still there, and that's going to be there after Wednesday. Um, that will be there to some degree even after 
uh, the Senate impeachment trial, one would presume, um, if it does happen, and uh, I presume that it does happen, uh, that's still there. That's still the force. And that that reflects a lot of the concerns that Republicans had in not supporting impeachment. And the you know the fact that there is a very, very Trumpy Republican conference in the House of Representatives on the Republican side will remain even when President Trump is no longer president. I mean, I think there still are questions about uh, whether or not there is a Senate trial, I expect that there will be one, as, as you say. But, um, but, but there is a lot of uncertainty uh, surrounding all of this. I mean, to give you an idea, we now have a fifty-fifty Senate. I actually um, was a congressional correspondent at the time of the last fifty-fifty Senate, and I remember the intense negotiations during a time in which the Congress was divided, but much less deeply divided than they are now, uh, in the country for that matter. Um, but I remember the, the intense negotiations between uh, Lott and Daschle, the Democratic and Republican uh, leaders at the time, over uh, the organization of the Senate. You know, would, you know, how would the committees work? 50-50 uh, Senate, you know, you can't have the committees at 50-50. <laughs> you know, it'd be, everything would be a tie because the, the, the vice president doesn't sit on every committee. So you have you know, big negotiations over committee ratios, not just numbers, but also budgets and all this, all this mundane stuff, but very, very, you know, intensely negotiated. And, and now it has to be negotiated uh, between Schumer and uh, McConnell, two people that have a much less constructive relationship than Lott and Daschle had. Um, and all that kind of flows to, 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 the, to a Senate trial, which is, you know, ultimately has to be because everything works by consensus ultimately in the Senate. There needs to be some kind of an agreement. So I don't know how this is all going to play out. I don't know how you know, the Biden factor is going to play into this and um, you know, his desire to see the Senate spend half the day working on his, uh, on his agenda and his, and his nominations, the other half working on a trial. We'll see if that all works. Um, I, I am where I was uh, almost 24 hours ago when we were discussing... Uh, the, the outlook in the Senate, I do believe that it is uh, possible that you would have enough Republicans to convict. I also believe it's a very, very steep climb, and I think it is far less likely uh, than likely that, that he actually would get convicted, that you would get 17 Republicans uh, to vote to convict. You also have some Republicans who are making the argument that ultimately the president's legal team may make, which is that the process can't even move forward, that um, this is Senator Cotton has said this directly. Um, there's been op-eds written on this that uh, that might be cited that say that uh, you can't actually have an impeachment trial for someone who's no longer in office. Now, McConnell doesn't seem to buy into that, but I don't actually think it's going to be up to the Senate. I think it's going to be up to the courts uh, pretty quickly as to whether it can even go forward. But regardless, I, you know, look, pity Joe Biden uh, for inheriting – uh, not only the worst public health crisis in you know in generations, um, and, a, and, a, and an economy that's staggering and stumbling, and political divisiveness, but now very literally inheriting Trump. Uh, you know, Trump's going to be overshadowing the early days of the Biden uh, of the Biden administration, and it's going to it has an impact over goings on in the Capitol over the next week. The security arrangements are going to be unlike anything we've ever seen. We're hearing talk of even more scaling back of in-person events around the inaugural, concern around state capitals. Uh, and then the, the, some legislative time and some media time that is going to be consumed now by Donald Trump after January 20th, after he is an ex-president. 
So, Rick, uh, I, I thought that uh, we would get together with friend of the podcast, Frank Luntz, who has done uh, a, a significant amount of, spent a significant amount of time uh, uh, studying Trump voters. He's recently did a survey of Trump voters. He's done focus groups as all this has unfolded. Uh, and I think, I think if Trevor Hastings has pulled this off, Frank is on the line right now. Is that true, Frank? That is true. So, so Frank... Uh, before we get to your research, I, I, I want to get a, get a sense from you about how you think that vote played out. Rick, Rick asked a, a question: Is is ten Republicans a lot uh, for impeachment? You know, it's twice as many as voted for Bill Clinton, or or does it show how, or is it small? It's, it's less than five percent of the caucus. What what what's your sense? How do you read? That, uh, that, that, that number and the way that played out? I read it as very high for a simple reason. 43% of Trump voters say they will definitely, and I mean that word definitely, vote against anyone who voted for impeachment. So if you are a Republican and you cast a vote for impeachment, you have essentially given up your political career. I'm not saying that they shouldn't have done it. And there's some things more important than the individual. But 10 Republican House members decided that their country was more important than themselves. And that's a significant sacrifice. So to me, it's a, it's a big number. I guess of the 10, the, the most interesting and important is Liz Cheney, who is number three in the House leadership and you know, perhaps had designs on one day becoming Speaker of the House. I don't know, but, but, but certainly is a, uh, is a leader in the House. Do you think her political career is over because of how she voted and what she said? Obviously, this is a very quick-moving situation. But I'm aware that there are a number of Republicans from different elements of the party that are calling for her to step aside because of that vote. That they are saying that you cannot lead Republicans when you are attacking the Republican president. I strongly disagree with that. I think she's an incredible, uh, uh, smart, sharp, very astute at strategy, a good communicator. I think she's an incredible addition to the leadership team. And I would hope that Republicans would calm down and think about the long term. But the number of people who are calling for her to step aside has been increasing every hour. It is significant. In the end, I think she survives. But as this podcast is about breaking news, not just analyzing it, she's got a challenge on her hands over the next few days and next few weeks. Frank, walk us through the the research that you've done uh, even since last Wednesday, uh, the, the focus group, the polling that you've that you've you've been up to. How has this how has this news gone down in Trump world in MAGA world? To my surprise, and this is the single most important finding: fifty percent, half of the November Trump vote want Trump to continue to contest the election. They don't want him to give up. I know that there's a significant percentage of things that on the 20th of January, I don't know how, but they think that he's still going to become president. 73%, three quarters 
think the election system is rigged and needs to be fundamentally changed. Uh, and to me, it is amazing that 67% believe that Donald Trump actually won the election, but that the votes weren't counted accurately and fairly. So even with what happened, and only a quarter of Trump's voters are willing to blame him, hold him accountable for his role in the events of January 6th, most of them believe that that was that it was either the press generated it or Antifa was really responsible. They were Democrats that they were dressed as Republicans. They've given me every possible excuse. But just 25 percent of Trump voters are willing to hold him responsible for what happened. And as I read this and as I, I'll give you an example, I conducted a focus group last week. We're doing one right now. We're doing one tonight because I think that the opinions are changing. But they're arguing with each other the way they used to argue with the Democrats, that it has now become an internal or a circular firing squad, whichever metaphor you like. And I think that the Republican Party is in grave danger. I know that they felt this way after the removal of Richard Nixon. They felt this way, Democrats felt this way after Ronald Reagan's landslide in 1984, that we go through these periods of, uh, of believing that a party is in a fatal condition. I will tell you that since the Great Depression, the Republican Party has never been in, a, in such peril, never been so divided. And I don't know what the outcome will be. I'll give you one more statistic from the survey. One third of Trump voters want him to leave the party, start a third party, and they will follow him into that third party. Yeah, Frank. I mean, to me, and we, we talked to Adam Kinzinger about this just yesterday, and, and his take on it was good. Let him go. The good riddance, if 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 you believe that the president, if you're a QAnon supporter, if you believe the president actually won, get out of my party. That would be nice. I wonder if that there might be even too clean a scenario for some Republicans, but do you, is that, to your mind, like, how likely is that? I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I think we talk about this all the time, that this, you know, cleaving the parties. And I think we talked about this with the Tea Party, uh, with Palin, and uh, long before Trump came to the national scene, didn't materialize. It ended up being absorbed into the Republican Party. But what's different now? And, and do you think it's now almost inevitable? The difference now is the environment. Number one, you've got social media. So they're collecting no information whatsoever from sources that will inform them. They only collect information that will affirm them. So we've created an echo chamber that is more airtight now than it has ever been. Number two is that they genuinely feel like the country, that this is it, that this is the final stand. That I was shocked that almost a third of these Trump voters believe that, we, that it may be justified, violence may be justified to save the country that they know. It's it, that element, the Palin element, the, 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 the extremist element was never the mainstream of the party. And now it threatens to become the mainstream of the party. The idea that the ignored and forgotten have a right to do what happened uh, on January 6th is, is not what the Republicans used to be. There's a great sign that I've not done enough on this. I took a photograph of a sign of a woman who was walking in the, in the march, and she said, unlike liberals, Trump voters don't riot. And I took a photograph of that sign in her. And within 15 minutes of my taking that photograph, the riot began on Capitol Hill. This is not the Republican Party that I grew up with. This is not the Republican Party that I joined 
40 years ago. This is not the Republican that I knew even, even four years ago. It is a different Republican Party. Frank, send me that picture. I'd like to see that. That's, that's fascinating. Let, let me ask you about that day. You were, you were here. You were here in Washington. And um, as I understand, you, you actually walked back into the Capitol uh, when the leadership came back in with, uh, with Kevin McCarthy. What did you, what did you witness? Earlier in the day, because I live on uh, 7th and E Streets, for viewers who don't know, listeners who don't know, I'm only a 90-second walk to Pennsylvania Avenue. And so I walked all the way from, from 7th and Pennsylvania up to the Capitol. It's about a, maybe a 10, 15-minute walk with the protesters. And what I saw there was very different than, than previous Trump rallies. Trump rallies were always positive, were always patriotic. They all looked for ways to chant USA and everybody wore flags and it was just a very positive environment. Not this time. The signs were uglier. The chants were uglier. And what I saw outside were, were uh, protesters standing in, in front of the, of the police cars, of giving the security people, giving the cops and the, uh, the various security people a hard time. I'd never seen that before. That is not, was not typical of a Trump event. In the Trump events that I went to, because I always, I believe you have to go, you have to listen, you have to see it with your own eyes and hear it with your own ears. All of those were very uh, positive, that they would applaud the cops to make a d distinction between the Black Lives Matter protests and their protests. Not this time. They blocked, and I've got videos of this, they blocked the police cars from, from moving through the crowd. They blocked them from going backward. They yelled at the cops, and this is not at the Capitol grounds. This is now six, seven blocks away. These were people, their mentality now is that the police are defending a corrupt system, and I'd never seen that before. So my office, the, my friends who knew that I was there, who have followed me on Twitter, they said, go home, and this is not safe. And later on that evening, at about 10 p.m., I did re-enter the Capitol for about four hours. And I was given a, uh, escorted on a tour because you can't walk around the Capitol anymore. One of the outgrowths of all of this is that citizens like me will no longer be able to walk through the halls of the Capitol unescorted. We're not going to be able to interact with our elected officials. There's going to be barriers between us and them. And that is a horrible consequence. That if you're coming in from Kansas, Nebraska, Wyoming, Texas, and you want to see your member of Congress, it is going to be so much more difficult. You're not going to be able to wander the halls of the Capitol anymore. And what a tragedy that is. And I saw the broken glass. I saw the, the exhibits that had been destroyed. People had left their crap behind. Uh, they had made a mess of the place. And you can never say that, that Trump supporters now, you cannot, it is not right to say, maybe it's the vast majority of them that are okay. But these were people with Donald Trump hats, MAGA hats, and they did so much damage to this building that they claimed that they supported, they claimed that they respected and revered. And it's a disgrace. And McCarthy's office was ransacked as well, right? What, what was his reaction seeing the shattered glass and the... It was not ransacked. They were in the, they were in the office, but it was not ransacked. They did not do that kind of damage. They, they were trying to get it on the outside. They were in his office. 
uh, and I emphasize how few people are wearing masks. Yeah. I'm waiting to see whether there is an outbreak of COVID uh, in the Capitol over the next few days because of that. Uh, they were much more targeted on Nancy Pelosi than they were on Kevin McCarthy. But everyone was stunned and everyone was grateful that nobody was hurt, that nobody was, um, that, that the damage is, is survivable. Um, but the idea of what they saw and what they heard and that they lost control of capital still is shocking to members. And, and I've been hosting members over the last few days in my home. And I've probably talked to maybe three dozen of them since the 6th. And I, they're not the same people today. No one is. We're not the same country today. Washington, D.C. is not the same city today. And I watch how breathlessly some of these cable channels uh, just, just, they lose. They're so focused on, on what's happening right now and they're missing the greater point that our democracy is not the same today that it was at least two months ago and that a significant percentage of the country will never, ever trust our electoral system again. And if you are, if you are serious about this, that should upset you the most that we have lost the faith and confidence of our people. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we were, we were all shaken by this, and I, I share your sentiments and my reaction about the, the tragedy going forward, about people losing access to a um, tremendous, unique opportunity to interact and to, to, to walk those halls. That's probably gone now, um, and for good reason, because of security concerns. Uh, and you know, we're going to have six days from now, President-elect Biden take the oath of office. He will come in with a Democratic majority in the Senate, a Democratic majority in the House. There will be, uh, in all likelihood, an impeachment trial that will be a distraction. You will also have a, a very energized Democratic base that, um, you know, some of whom are basically saying, told you so. Uh, they are they're saying, look, we told you that they were these were bad people. Uh, they showed it. Um, we have we have some on the progressive side who are saying we need to they, they need to remove members of Congress who are QAnon supporters or, or support of the election challenges. There's a lot of a lot of kind of you know hey look this is finally they're exposed type of talk. Uh, Biden Biden that's not his his natural element. How do you how do you gauge his challenge and and also the reaction on the far left or some on the far left to what we saw? I have a simple statement for them. We need reconciliation, not revenge. We need to learn from what happened, hold those accountable who participated, and use this to repair the breach. Every generation, it gets worse. Things that we dreamed, that we never dreamed of. Every 10 years, things happen that we would have said, this is impossible. And I, I still, when, they, when I was told they're breaking into the Capitol, I didn't believe it. And they started sending me videos and I just, I couldn't, and I've got a 15, 20 people begging me, get off the street. And I didn't think it was possible. And I would say to those who, who want to get even, that a far better strategy is to get ahead. A far better strategy is to take what we've learned and to take the the, the crisis of confidence that we have right now, take it, change the education system so that we, we teach kids how to uh, engage in civil politics, change the support system 
so that people who've been struggling with COVID, which is a major contributor to all this tension and this anger, so that we, uh, we are a stronger country economically. Use what happened for something positive rather than to, to uh, continue to this, this trend of, I hate you, I don't recognize you, I dehumanize you, I de delegitimize you. I see it everywhere. I hear it among Republicans, I hear it among Democrats. I watched the debate last yesterday on the floor and I thought half the speeches were brilliant calling on us to be better Americans, better angels, and half the, half the speeches were pathetic. Just adding insult to injury, just making things even more difficult, even harder to unify a country. And you guys in the media have a particular responsibility. You are the ones who tell us what we need to know. The average American doesn't get to do what I get to do, doesn't get to talk to these people. The average American gets their information through you all. So what you report and how you report it and the tone you put on it and the spin you put on it matters and whether or not you're willing to challenge. And the two of you are great defenders of your profession because you're great practitioners of your profession. You all are journalists of the, of the best degree, quality. I trust you, John and Rick, when you say something, I believe it to be so. I believe it is a fact. But there are too many of your colleagues, as I've been watching, that have been inserting their own opinion rather than telling me what's really going on. And we can't have that now. Already, your profession has the lowest level of trust in history. We've got to rebuild that trust. We've got to get people to read more, to watch more, to question and doubt more. But in the end, your, factual, your factuality, and I know that's not a word, I just created one, but your factuality will determine whether or not we can pull out of this. All right, hey Frank, I, I can hear it in your voice. I, I, I know that, that, I mean, this, this experience, uh, what we've all witnessed uh, on, on the 6th of January and in the aftermath has affected all of us. I can, I can hear it in your voice that it has affected you. You were there, you witnessed it uh, uh, firsthand and, uh, and it was horrifying. And uh, I, I appreciate you sharing with us your, uh, your, your research, your comments, um, and, and, and your feelings about all this. And uh, we always learn from you, Frank. So thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. I'll see you guys. Yep. All right, Rick, that is it for our special edition of Powerhouse Politics. Uh, hopefully, um, hopefully the days ahead will be a little bit uh, more normal than the days we've just uh, been through. But, uh, but we shall see. Trevor Hastings, Avery Miller. The tremendous powerhouse politics team, thank you for coming together again. We will talk to you soon.